people have spoken, and Jeff Ross has returned for Roast Battle 2. The four-night event features top comedians getting verbally violent until just one is left standing. Featuring a star-studded lineup of judges, including Snoop Dogg, Sarah Silverman, and Jason Sudeikis, this is a battle you won't want to miss. Not unlike the big boss fights we're about to be talking about. The four-night event begins January 26th at 10, 9 Central on Comedy Central. And don't miss the live finale on Sunday, January 29th at 10, 9 Central to see who gets crowned the king or queen of cruelty. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, Channel 33's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, he's the hidden boss. It's my Whoa. colleague, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Hey Jason. Hi. So I got Overwatch. This oh, is the so week. excited for this. It actually arrived. I sent you a picture and then I proceeded not to play it. Ah, oh, <laughs> you didn't play it at all? I'm taking this in stages. So it, oh it took me, I'm going about this ritualistically. It took me <laughs> months to get the game. <sighs> Next week, I will remove the wrapper. The week after that, I will remove that little sticky strip with the barcode on it that prevents you from opening the box. <laughs> the week after that, I will play Overwatch. No, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. There's Wait. tangible progress being made. However, I did play Nefarious, hey. which is a new game out on Steam this week. It's a platformer yep. where you play as the bad guy. You take part in reverse boss fights. And we're going to talk to the creator of that game, Josh Hano, in the second half of this episode. And as part of that, we're also going to weave in little snippets from a bunch of our former guests who will be talking about their favorite boss fights and describing what they were and why they liked them. And uh, then you and I will probably pick a favorite boss battle or two. But before that, we have another guest to get to. His name is Blake Rockkind. He is a video game agent. For United Talent Agency, which sounds like a really cool job. Wanted to have him on to find out how cool it actually is. Hey, Blake, how are you? Hey, guys, how are you? I'm good. Doing all right. So I read a bit about the history, the short history of video game agents. And there was a good piece in Polygon a couple of years ago about how things got started up at CAA, where you worked for a while. And it sounded like the first generation of video game agents was sort of an accidental generation you know there weren't video game agents before that and people who just had some interest in gaming or new people in the industry just kind of fell into it because they were there at the right time when their company was maybe looking for new business and I'm curious whether that was the case with you or whether you came along late enough that you could actually aspire to do this job because other people had done it already. Can you give us the the background, the career progression for how you ended up here? Yeah. So you kind of hit it on the head with uh, how uh, my understanding, at least uh, the answer is I came on a little later, but my understanding of uh, how it started was, you know, in typical Hollywood fashion, people started to see that video games were making a lot of money and they said, we got to be in this business. And I think the first uh, iterations of, of sort of representation in the games business centered around sort of representing IP, trying to make the you know, video game IP into movies, vice versa, uh, maybe even working with actors to try to get them into video games. And uh, my sort of mentor and boss, uh, Ophir Lupu, who has been doing this much longer than, than I, uh, he was at CAA. And I know that that's where, uh, when he arrived at CAA, that was sort of where their head was at. And uh, I think he had the foresight to see you know, the value in this business long-term was going to be in the creators of video games. Uh, and back then that was a pretty bold statement because uh, we certainly didn't have really the indie space back then. Uh, there were very few people had sort of set themselves apart uh, as creators, uh, but they sort of stuck at it. And I think now it's a, it's, it's a very healthy business. So to answer the question specifically to me, I came around uh, 2010 uh, and it was definitely in that sort of second generation. I'm a, I'm a big gamer. This was no accident. I actually read an article in Fast Company uh, about uh, video game agents, and I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. And I applied for an internship at CAA, uh, was hired on there uh, eventually as an, uh, an assistant after the internship, and then uh, moved over to UTA with Ophir and got promoted uh, about four years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. 
And we were just joking before we started recording about how there aren't many video game agents on Twitter. And you said that there really aren't that many video game agents, period. I mean, can you kind of come up with any ballpark estimate? Like, does every big agency have a video game wing? Are there smaller boutique video game agencies? Or is it really just something that the big shops have? I mean, can you quantify at all how much it's grown in sort of the the decade or or so that, that it's been a thing? I would guess worldwide, there has to be less than 50 agents. Uh, and that's probably on the very high end. It's probably closer to 25 agents globally, just period in the business, sort of doing what, what I do or anything even remotely uh, like it. I would say with VR, with the advent of VR, Hollywood's obviously taken a huge interest in VR. So the answer to your question is a little more complicated. I would say every major agency is at the least sort of dabbling in the VR space. You know, we have a dedicated video game practice, CAA does, and there are other various uh, boutique agencies out there. But it's not some massive thing because the truth is, you know, first off, it's relatively new. There are people who have success in the video game industry without agents. It's sort of not that the industry wasn't built around sort of the agency model the same way that Hollywood was. And to be honest, there's just not that many people or studios that sort of justify representation. So I don't think there's the same need for, for agents. You mentioned that you used to, when you, when you first started out, video game agents mostly dealt with IP. Um, yeah. I think people kind of have, like a general audience kind of has an, a vague idea of what agents do in the sports milieu or in Hollywood. But what is, so what do you do? What's what's the day-to-day of an agent for video games? Do you mostly do creators? Do you do teams? Do you do studios? How does someone come to you with a project that they need financing? You know, how, how does it work? Yeah, so the answer is, all of the above. Uh, and the simplest way to put it is uh, in the same way that directors are represented, actors are represented, uh, my job uh, and our job is to get people financing to make video games. Uh, that is what I do day in, day out. I would say that's 95% of what I do. Uh, that can be individuals in, in very rare cases. I would say there's, there's not tons of, of sort of individuals that sort of command the type of deals that, that would require an agent's guidance uh, and representation. And then there's studios, which is the bulk of what we do. And then there's sort of a third bucket that can oftentimes be a blend of the two. So uh, sometimes we can end up representing an individual uh, and then they leave and sort of start their own studio and we help them start that studio and then subsequently uh, represent that studio. Typically our buyers, quote unquote, are the publishers, the ones that you guys are uh, probably very familiar with. And depending on what the team is or what genre they're operating in or what business model they're following... Also, sort of some of the what we call strategic investors, right? So Tencent, Smilegate, NetEase, some of these companies that you probably hear from time to time invested in or bought XYZ video game company. Those aren't appropriate for everything, but sometimes sometimes we speak to them as well and do deals with them. In terms of in terms of how they come to us or vice versa, I mean, especially us at UTA, we are just two guys. It's myself and my colleague Ophir, and he, you know, we have made it a point to sort of represent what we believe are sort of the cream of the crop. So people who generate their own IP, valuable IP, people who have had previous success, we help them hopefully have even greater success. So oftentimes, it's not really totally unknown people who show us something uh, that sort of blows us away. We end up representing them, although that does happen from time to time. But it's usually uh, taking somebody who's had uh, some level of success and trying to take that to another level. Uh, so it's not it's not just somebody walks in and is like, oh, I've got this uh, great kind of like working model of a video game or a concept. Get me money. Ex- very rarely. It's, it's not too different from the, the other uh, big agencies and how they treat yep. any other sort of talent, right? The UTA, I would say rarely would take on a completely unknown artist who had never done anything unless they had a script or something along those lines that was completely mind-blowing, right? And so it's the same thing. There have been cases where we have where we have sort of wrapped clients out of seemingly nowhere, um, but most of the time, it's people who have either been behind big AAA projects that you guys are familiar with or studios who've made great indie projects that you guys uh, are familiar with. So yeah. And what are your clients typically looking for aside from money? I mean, that's probably most of it, but what else do they want in terms of, I don't even know, working conditions or equity or or who knows what? What exactly is it that you can get them that they can't get on their own? Or what do they want when they approach you and say, you know, this is what we hope you can do for us that someone else couldn't or that we couldn't do for ourselves? Uh, first thing is creative control, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now, any deal, if you, if you do a publishing deal, there's always the opportunity that the publisher can 
cancel the deal if they don't like the direction of the game. But I think it's important that any creator wants to be able to make their vision come true. So yes, money is an important part of that. But so is you know IP ownership. Uh, I think more and more, especially in today's day and age, when there are tons of companies out there who sort of just totally self-fund, self-release, you know, amazing games that that then become sort of a valuable IP out of it, and they can do sequels. So I think if you're going to take someone else's money, IP ownership is is definitely something that you want to uh, try to retain. Time, so you know, everything's a factor of time and money, right? So people want the right amount of time to make their game. You know, and publishers today, you know, beyond just money, in a world where you can sort of put your game on Xbox and PlayStation, maybe not as easy as you can the App Store, but still much easier than you could in the past. I think a lot of developers are looking for help with some of the less sexy parts of game development, right? So localization, quality assurance testing, marketing, PR, uh, even submission to the platforms, because like I said, it's not as easy as the App Store. There is sort of a relationship building thing there and and sort of back-end paperwork that you have to do in order to get your game out into those stores. And uh, and some publishers are, every publisher uh, or most publishers have the money to fund games, but there are some publishers who are much better and, and much more understanding of the indie relationship. So you started out in kind of the traditional agency business. What's the difference? What are the primary differences working in video games? I, I really came in just for video games. I was an oh, assistant. Wow. I was an assistant first. But I can tell you just from the standpoint of just dealing with my colleagues and knowing what they go through, you certainly have uh, less egos in the video game business. I wouldn't say zero, but it's not as crazy as maybe you've seen on Entourage or, or things <laughs> like that, which, which can be more accurate than you would think. You know, something that I butted up against when I first got promoted, and I know the people who came before me butted up against much longer before that, has been sort of in the video game industry, agents are not sort of just accepted. Uh, it's definitely gotten better in the in the years that I've been doing this. Uh, and I would say it's almost become a complete non-issue because I think we've we've done great work for our clients. I think that the people on sort of the buyer end have now realized our value as well, sort of making a smooth process and making deals that are sort of mutually beneficial for all. Um, but there there was and still is, uh, to a certain extent, sort of a, uh, you know, oh, you know, we don't need agents on this. We don't <laughs> right. need, you know, and, and that's something right. that, again, it, it's less and less, but it's, it's definitely happened. And also even just explaining what I do, right? I came right. on this podcast and you guys asked what <laughs> I do, because if, if you say, hey, I'm a film agent, nobody asked you what that means. They've seen right. Mm-hmm. You've seen enough movies. It's a hundred years it. of cinema behind behind that idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was listening to friend of the podcast, Chris Sullentrop's podcast, Shall We Play a Game? And he had Ronan Farrow on recently. Yeah, and... I actually I listened to that podcast and I listened to that yeah. episode. Yeah. yeah. So he was talking about how in the sort of media circles that he tends to move in, video games are looked down upon or or not looked upon at all, really. And yeah. I wonder whether that's the case in the circles that you move in with sort of these more established industries kind of under the same umbrella as your division within a larger company is the video game division looked on as sort of, you know, small fry, like upstarts, or have you had to sort of fight for respect in that way? So on the, on the social side of things, uh, I listened to that episode and I know Ronan sounded like he hangs out with an older crowd. Uh, I would say I'm, I'm 28. Whether it's my colleagues, friends, I think I'm on the upper end of a generation that find video games to be completely normal. I grew up with video games. Most of people I know grew up with video games. Now, a lot of them sort of fell off uh, as they got older mm-hmm. and, and some didn't. But I think you'll only see that become more and more normal as sort of the Minecraft generation grows up and sort of inherits the earth. And eventually we'll have a president where you'll be able to go see what their gamer score was on Xbox Live. And I very much look forward to that day. Um, and uh, uh, professionally speaking, one of the things that I love about UTA is uh, we do not feel like small fries at all. Uh, we find that the company uh, is very interested in what we're doing, uh, is very supportive, uh, you know, and uh, always wants to hear, you know, when we have something exciting to share. Uh, you know, Ophir works very closely with uh, Fumito Ueda, and I can't tell you how many people wrote him congratulatory emails when the last guardian came out and that was a very cool thing and a very supportive thing of, of our colleagues. So it's a, in that respect, it's, it's great. How is, how is esports kind of change your side of the business? Do you guys deal with that at all? Yeah, that comes up all the time because uh, where there's money, you know, there's right. going to be some sort of agency interests. 
it's definitely something the agency is exploring. There are things in that space I can't talk about uh, currently that that are in the works. You're signing me as a professional Overwatch player. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> um, are you are you an over are you an Overwatch fan? Oh yeah, oh big time. Oh nice. Yeah, yeah. me me too, me too. I'm excited about the Chinese New Year event. Yeah, I'm w- hoping for my uh, my Reinhardt skin to drop. Hasn't happened yet. But... I didn't get the. I'm, I play Zenyatta, and I did not get the. Uh, I did not get the Christmas skin. I didn't get the Nutcracker skin last time. Oh so man, I'm hoping I, I get this the one. Christmas skin. I I'm not proud to say this, but I dropped probably like thirty bucks on loot boxes until it popped up. <laughs> yeah, I dropped. I dropped fifteen and didn't, still didn't get it, and I stopped. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, there's definitely interest in esports, uh, both at UTA and I'm sure the other agencies as well. And I know that there are esports agencies sort of in existence. You know, me personally, I'm you know I do this because I love video games. If, if I wasn't an agent, I would be doing something else in the video game space. And the truth is, most of the video games, with the exception of Overwatch, actually, Overwatch totally took me by surprise how much I like it. But most of the games that I am interested in personally and professionally, tend to be sort of narrative-focused, uh, linear with a beginning, middle, and end. And so on a, on a personal level, I don't have an extreme interest in esports. I, you know, I would love it. Uh, nothing would make me happier than if one of my clients were to make a game that was popular enough to become an esport. That would be incredible. But I always, you know, when this, this does come up all the time, one of the things I say is asking a video game agent, not that you were asking me if I was going to be an esports agent, but asking like a video game agent if they were going to become an esports agent or, or start representing esports players, wouldn't be that different than asking a television agent if they were going to start representing NFL players. You know, mm-hmm. both of them are on both modern family and football are things that you watch on TV, but they're totally different sectors of television and entertainment. And I think that uh, esports is no different than that and, and will only prove to be sort of this totally separate business that exists in the larger video game business, which is which is large enough to encompass a multitude of, of businesses, you know, virtual reality as well will probably become its own sort of vertical business. And so I gather that optioning games for movies and that sort of thing is not the bulk of your business, but I assume it's something you've been involved in along the line. And can you tell me kind of what the interest level is right now with movie studios? You know, are they scared off by the track record? Do they still see video games as a fertile ground for potential adaptations? Are there any misgivings? What's the state of that side of things? Yeah, I would say for a while they were scared of the track record, uh, maybe two years ago. And I think right now, uh, for various reasons, we're sort of in in an upswing in interest. I field a lot of calls just from other people in the industry who somehow uh, find my information or their colleague tells them to call me and they'll ask me about a video game and whether or not I think it's a good IP and whether or not uh, I think it would make a good movie. Oftentimes it's because they saw a commercial for the game, Uh (laughs) which if you're seeing a commercial for the game on TV, it means it's probably too late to pick up the film rights. But I do believe that there's a upswing in interest for a few reasons. One, obviously uh, the comic book. Uh, movie genre has, I don't want to say peaked, but it's been around for a while and that well has is sort of becoming dry. And I think people see video games as sort of the next thing that can sort of be that well of IP because the, the reason people like comic books, besides the fact that there's a story there, right? It's also, there's a built-in audience. But I think the important thing is you have to make a good movie, right? No one's going to go see a bad video game movie because they like the game. Or I shouldn't say no one, but not enough people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still waiting for that great video game movie. Yeah. Uh, but I will say I saw Assassin's Creed because it was the first time that, that somebody had made a movie of a series. I guess if you don't count the Super Mario Brothers movie from like '94, <laughs> but it was the first time that somebody had made a movie of a of a series that I like and have played many games in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually thought that movie like it wasn't. I mean, I probably shouldn't say this because it's okay. I'm going to get no, myself in trouble. But I, 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 I like. I, it was. It was not as bad as reviews would sure. have you believe. That's what I will say. Yeah, we talked about it on the podcast, and we didn't think it was good, but we didn't think it was worse than your generic run of the mill, yeah. not good movie. <laughs> exactly. I would. I would. I, I told my friends if that game, if that had been an original IP with the exact same script, same actors, same everything, just wasn't a Call of Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Instead of the twenty percent it has around to me it would have like a 50% or a 40%, which mm-hmm. still isn't lighting the world on fire. But I, I do think people walk into those movies sort of with a, oh, another video game movie. This is going to be, yeah. <laughs> well, when someone calls you and asks you whether you think it would make a good movie, what do you tell them or how do you make that decision? What do you look for in a game that you think would make a good movie? Yeah, I mean, 
I think that it either, it either needs to be uh, two things that are sort of on the opposite ends of the spectrum. It either needs to be uh, such an incredible story that you could really just, like the movie writes itself. So I would say like The Last of Us is probably the first thing that comes to mind when I think of, of something like that. Mm-hmm. And I know for a while, uh, Neil Druckmann was, was writing The Last of Us film script. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was great. Or the other end of the spectrum, which is it has to be something so sort of generic that you can kind of just plug any sort of story into it, right? So I don't know. First thing that just came to mind was like Resident Evil, which I know they've done a bunch of Resident Evil movies and they've sort of all followed the same character, but you could kind of do anything, you know, horror related and call it Resident Evil. Yeah. So I think those are the those are the two things I would say. But one thing I have to explain to people all the time is there's there's a tremendous risk for some of these people to get involved in the video in the in the movie business, right? I would personally love to see a great Zelda movie. Nothing would make me happier. And I think if if they made a Zelda movie and it was good, I think Hollywood would be completely blown away by how well it would do. And that would probably start like a whole video game frenzy. But from Nintendo's perspective, think about how scary that is to have your... I, I would say if you were to independently uh, value the Zelda IP, it would have to be close to a billion dollars, if not more. Mm-hmm. Think about how how scary that is. You're, you're one of your crown jewels, one of this beloved... IP that you sort of own and control and have fostered for years, suddenly you're giving it to a company that operates in a space that you're not fluent in. Right, which that didn't work out so well for them the first time. Ex- exactly. <laughs> and um, you're not fluent in it. It's, it's a, and what's the best case scenario? The best case scenario is the movie makes what, a billion dollars and you got 20% of it as a, as, a, as a license owner, right? And then, okay, so you, it's, the risk and reward maybe just isn't there. But then there's also the other, there's the flip side, which is, okay, maybe you have like a somewhat successful video game franchise that could become more popular because of a, of a movie. Uh, so I think it's interesting. I, somebody will figure it out. I think, I think a big part of it is that you don't really have filmmakers or you haven't in the past had filmmakers that grew up with video games and sort of, mm. sort of a, a square peg round hole thing. And I think that uh, like many other things involving video games, you're going to start having, and you probably already do have a whole bunch of directors and writers who are genuinely fans of this of this of this medium and uh hopefully somebody sort of finds the right match of of somebody with that respects the the medium and uh and wants to wants to make a great movie but i know it's more complicated um, than that the movie business yeah. is, is, is i was you you were mentioning how telling people that you're a video game agent or um introducing yourself in that way is still kind of novel for some people it's such a young um part mm-hmm. of the business. I remember the first time someone that I knew was like my agent. It was mind blowing to me. Um, mm-hmm. so you, at what point did you feel like people kind of expected that you would exist? You know what I mean? Like people weren't just shocked that you're a, like a video game agent. What? Yeah. So not even me personally, but when did people just start to like understate, like it, that didn't become like a thing that was right, weird yeah. to say yes. that you were a video game agent. Yeah. I would say somewhere probably 2014, mm-hmm. if I had to like put a year on it, I, I couldn't tell you exactly why. My guess it would be it would be a function of just time. Uh, like I said, people have been sort of at this since the since two thousand, really. And also, I think there were there were, you know high profile success stories that had agents behind them. And uh, sort of whether or not that's reported in the media, I think people in the industry uh, slowly became aware that that some of the best studios out there uh, had were, were represented, and and some of the best games were the result of an agent making a deal for that game to exist. Have you been doing this long enough that there are now stories you are allowed to tell about, I don't know, a a time you landed a client you were really excited about or a time that you arranged a deal that everyone was really happy with or just some (laughs) game or some studio that you are most proud of of having done deals with? So always we're always hesitant to go into specifics because there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. that we shouldn't talk about, can't talk about, and haven't been announced. Um, There's something that I wanted to say, but it's unannounced and it, it would be a great one so maybe if i'm on you can go back a bit if maybe you, if, if i'm on want. maybe yeah. if i'm on like after e3 or something we can we can talk about it no this is a very um, unpopular podcast there's very few yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one example actually and it sort of goes back to the early thing when we talked about the the different buckets that we operate in one of my very first clients i actually started working with him when i was still an assistant uh is dean hall and he made uh daisy which you may be familiar with it's the mm-hmm. zombie survival he yep. sort of yep. kind of created the whole modern survival genre when i met dean he was still giving the mod away for free and he was 
I remember the first time I ever spoke to him, he was like, dude, my life is insane right now. I don't know what's happening. There are Korean businessmen sleeping outside my door, trying to like <laughs> sign me to deals. <laughs> and that sort of started a very long process of us uh, at UTA uh, representing Dean. We ended up making sort of employment deals for him at the mm. company that he, or sorry, so he modded Arma. Arma. Arma Correct. to make daisies yes. right now. So he ended up being hired by uh, the guys who make Arma Bohemia Interactive to sort of come on full time. He sold the IP to them and sort of work on the game. So we ended up representing him there for a few years. And then he decided to leave, sort of start his own thing, a company called Rocketworks. And uh, that was like an 18 month process from the time that he left Bohemia until the time that we announced uh, late last year that uh, Tencent a giant internet company uh, out of China who owns Riot Games, owns uh, Supercell. Uh, they invested in his company, Rocketworks. Uh, so that's one I can talk about because I know that that was sort of publicly uh, out there. Yeah. And how has your gaming changed as it's gone from recreational hobby to profession? Are you playing with a purpose more often now? Are you like scouting prospective clients or just feeling like you have to play certain games so that you will be able to talk about them if they come up in conversation? Yeah, I would say very naturally. I mean, I, I, I cannot stress enough. I'm a huge gamer, so it's changed probably very little. I think there are some things that maybe I will check out so that I can have an opinion on. Isn't it a game that maybe I would have skipped just knowing it's not my thing? Maybe I'll check in on it because everyone's talking about it, but I, maybe I would have been doing that regardless. Now that I'm an adult, really, an adult gamer, maybe I would have been doing that. Um, but I game all the time. I mean, maybe really the only difference is if there's like a signing, if there's somebody that I want to work with, maybe I'll, I'll race to finish their game before I, I speak to them or something along those lines. But to be honest, it hasn't changed much uh, other than it gives me, you know, I'm recently married and, and people always say, oh, how does your wife handle you being a gamer? Which I think is such a weird question because I would never have married somebody who had a problem with it. Um, <laughs> but it is, I mean, it, you know, it is my it's sort of my job and it puts food on the table. So it, it's sort of in that respect, I think it's just, I don't know. There's no excuses for why I can't play games because it is my job, but I don't think I would ever have made excuses anyway. So let's talk about your top 10 games of 2016 list. This sure. is, a, is impressed by this list. I got to say, I, uh, thank you is showed that you're a man of taste when it comes <laughs> yes. to video games. Should we read it? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll read it down and then, and then we can talk about it. Okay. Um, Overwatch number one, Last Guardian, mm -hmm. number two, Final Fantasy 15, Inside, Hyperlight Drifter, Batman Arkham VR, uh, Titanfall 2, Firewatch, Uncharted 4, Dishonored 2. So if you yes. have anything you want to say about these games, Overwatch, we'll start with Overwatch. Yeah, I mean, um, Overwatch, I think, was sort of the objective game of the year, whether you're talking about quality or not, it was easily the most important game or the, the sort of game that garnered the most attention. I've never been a big competitive multiplayer person, um, with the exception of Rocket League. And yes. the yes. first time I played, the first time I played Overwatch was uh, they did like an open beta before the game came out, and I totally bounced off of it. I was like, "This is too chaotic. I don't know what's what's going on." And oh, this is just going to be another one of the shooters that everyone plays that I don't understand. I never got into Team Fortress or anything like that. Then they did. It was right around Black Friday, actually. They're sort of evil geniuses there. They did the free weekend that yep. led into a $30 Black Friday deal. And uh, I played the free weekend on PS4. And for whatever, I don't even know why, for whatever reason, it clicked. I loved it. I bought the game. And then I think that combined with the fact that somehow or another, it became very apparent to me fast that I knew a bunch of people that were playing Overwatch within Hollywood. Overwatch oh, wow. Is of, Overwatch is one of those games that's really transcended people who don't play. I know somebody who owns a PS4 and only plays Overwatch. Like, that's literally the only game they have. I, there's because, a lot of people. There's I, I know people who do, like, stats and stuff for the NBA, and yeah. it's the only game they play. Yeah. I, I know somebody who his, his roommate was playing Overwatch on his PS4. He got addicted to it. They ended up, like, you know, he moved out and bought a PS4 and Overwatch, and that's it. Like, he doesn't play any other games. And it's an amazing game. I, I don't need... I'm sure most people in your audience are well familiar with it, but I think the genius things it does is it makes you... It only makes you feel good, never makes you feel bad. And there's 16 different ways to play it, right? I don't know how they balance it. Obviously, they're always working on it. Um, I know they're nerfing Roadhog soon, which is much needed. Get in get in while the hooking's good, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
but uh, it, there's 16 different ways to play the game. And, and it took me a while to sort of find the characters that I liked. Uh, I eventually settled on Zenyatta, which is maybe bad because now I, it's like I can't even I don't even enjoy it if I don't play as Zenyatta. I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm one of those now. Well, he's like, yeah, but he's he's very much in the like everybody. There's nobody that can really argue with the orbs of discord. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and the other day, somebody the other day, the other night, it may have even been last night. I somebody else did take Zenyatta when I was playing, and I started <laughs> and I started playing as um oh, I forgot. I think I was playing as Farah. Sure. And I'm so used to doing the L1 for the Discord orb <laughs> that I I was doing it and nothing was happening. Like I was see I would see somebody and I'd hit L1 to to Discord them and nothing would happen. And I thought that was funny. Last Guardian, I would say, in almost any other year would have been my game of the year. It's just Overwatch just had a shocking and major impact on, on, my, on my gaming experience in the latter half of last year. The Last Guardian's absolutely incredible. Trico, I think, is one of the all-time great game characters. Uh, mm-hmm. did, you guys, did you guys play yes, it? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if I would have had the exact reaction that I had to Last Guardian if I didn't have a dog, but I, I didn't grow yeah. up with a dog, but I have yeah. a dog now, uh, and I've had a dog for about four years now. And if you have a if you have an animal that you that you're close with, I think the Last Guardian will will have sort of a special place in your heart. And it's just it's it's an amazing game. I'm glad it lived up to the hype. Final Fantasy 15. I'm a huge Final Fantasy fan from back in the day. I'm one of those. You know, what's your what's your up. favorite um, iteration of the game? Seven, because yeah. the other answer would be ten. But what happened when my brothers and I? I'm the youngest of. I was the youngest of four. And growing up, we played a lot of video games together. I think it's one of the reasons why I am such a big gamer, because it was a cheap way of entertaining all of us. We used to play games all together, collectively in the basement. And there was one winter break that we were playing Final Fantasy X for PS2 in the basement. And uh, we probably got like 20 hours in together and our memory card got corrupted. Uh, So I never finished Final Fantasy X. So I can't can't say that that's my favorite. Although I loved Final Fantasy X, but I never finished it. Uh, And I thought 15 is definitely not uh, without its flaws. You can tell that it had, <laughs> you can tell that it had sort of a long, I don't want to say troubled, but tumultuous development. Uh, I think that's well documented. There are just parts of the game where like, you're, you're like, oh, wow, yeah. they clearly just cut out a huge chunk there. The car is trash. I disagree. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I, actually, I actually love the car. Uh, I think it's what I no 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 game has ever like captured a road trip. Like it, it, it that's did, tr- I, that is true. I couldn't the believe, car like, itself. The car, itself fantasy, the car itself is trash. That Final Fantasy would be the would would take such a and it sounds like even Resident Evil Seven does this too. That there are these big AAA franchises that sort of would take such a big you know left turn in in a in a, a risk so to speak. I was blown away by like it just it has a tone that I've never seen any sort of big game like that have. It's the quintessential greater than the sum of its parts game because if you look at each part. On its own, you you could find a flaw in every part of that game, and yet I absolutely loved it. And I really, really sincerely hope that they make a fifteen two. It sounds like the game sold really well for the franchise, so hopefully they will. Just to to close, you brought up VR earlier, and we've talked on the podcast before about the past and the future and where it's headed. And I'm curious about your perspective as someone who's sort of on the the front lines. Do you expect it to? be a big part of your job in the near future is it going to keep growing do you think that the issues it's had you know typical for any first generation hardware are going to persist or will it all be figured out and take over the world so i think that vr success and ar success and some people will tell you like like some people are like oh very common thing i hear sometimes is like oh vr is not where it's at it's ar is where it's at Mm -hmm. and there's truth to that but i also think that that's like trying to sound a little too smart like they will become the same thing. If AR becomes the thing, Oculus will just be an AR company. Like they're not that different, right? It's it's things in front of people's eyes that make them perceive and experience things that are beyond our current reality, right? Mm-hmm. But I do, I believe that their success is inevitable. I think it's too cool to fail VR. Um, I do think that there is a little bit of a hangover because it's very rare that something's sort of been out there in the ethos and in the developer community for so long without being commercially available. Apple announces the iPhone one, the iPhone one still comes out within like six months. Right. People, mm-hmm. gamers have been hearing about the Oculus since, I don't know what, 2012 was when the Kickstarter was, or was yep. it, it was years of hype and hearing these pe- people on podcasts that would go to GDC and experience it. And, and the technology has been like in the kind of pop culture sphere for 
even longer than that. Exactly. Right. So I think there is a little bit of a hangover from that right now. Also, it doesn't help that you need a thousand dollar computer and a six hundred dollar headset to do Oculus. Um, and it also doesn't help that Sony, for whatever reason, is having trouble stocking the PSVR. I don't know if it's because it's super popular or they're having manufacturing problems, but I know that it's not. You cannot get a PSVR right now, uh, which is a shame because it sounds like Resident Evil Seven. The PSVR is incredible. Do I think that it will be successful? Absolutely, for sure. Do I think it will eventually become a bigger uh, part of my job? But I do think that it will likely not happen this generation. I think it needs, you know, I think before it becomes super popular, it needs to be wireless. I think it needs to have 4K screens behind it so that you don't necessarily see the pixels. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that motion controls need to be ubiquitous and also developers just need to become more fluent in, in sort of the medium. But it's it's for sure. I mean, there's no doubt we we're not going to be we're not going to play games on our two dimensional screens forever. Yeah. All right. Well, people can find Blake on Twitter at Blake Rockkind. That's R O C H K I N D. And we will have to have you back on when you can talk about the big thing that yeah. you can't talk about yet. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Really good talking to you. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks, on. guys. Thanks a lot. Okay, we will be right back with Josh Haino, the creator of Nefarious. And remember that throughout the second segment, we will be splicing in favorite boss battle picks from a bunch of our former guests, ranging from 30 seconds or so to a couple of minutes. So don't be surprised when you hear those familiar voices cutting in. All right, so we are welcoming in now Josh Haino, who is the storyboard artist, animator, and creator of Nefarious, a game that came out for PC on Steam earlier this week. He is coming to us from PAX South, where you can find him in a booth hawking his wares. Hi, Josh. <laughs> Hi, guys. Uh, you know, pretty excited to be here. Yeah, so I want to ask you, according to Steam Spy, there were something like 4,721 Steam games released last year. It's crazy. How do you stand out from the pack, other than coming on achievement-oriented and getting the big Jason and Ben bump or huge, huge bump. <laughs> yes. Incalculable and, uh, or setting up at PAX South. Like how do you break out of just the ever flowing flood of steam releases? Yeah. You know, I saw that article like um, in the weeks leading up to our launch and I was like, <laughs> Oh geez. <laughs> uh, you know, I think Nefarious stands out in quite a few ways, you know, um, Obviously, the, the, the whole tagline is you are the villain, which, you know, not a lot of games do. Some do. Um, but I found in those games where you play as a villain, you, um, you either fight other villains or you fight heroes who are basically kind of corrupt. So in this game, you, you are a, you know, a Bowser type villain and, you know, you fight genuinely good heroes. <laughs> Uh, and aside from that, you know, you're not just the villain from a story perspective. Um, we go out of our way to make sure that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're the villain in mechanics as well. Like, mm-hmm. uh, which brings us to, you know, instead of rescuing the princess, you kidnap the princess and the princess will affect game mechanics in some way. You know, like we have an insect, like an insectian type princess and she, uh, she has wings so you can jump higher. We have like a, a lava type character who, uh, you, when you kidnap the, the princess, she, uh, she turns your grenades into like this, like a lava trail that you can run mm-hmm. on. So you can kind of create your own platforms. Mm-hmm. Not only that, we've got, uh, reverse boss fights, which is our, um, kind of our biggest way to distinguish ourselves from games where you play as the hero, uh, in our game, since you are the bad guy. Uh, you are the boss fight and a little hero will show up and you get into like this giant machine and you know you fight them. <laughs> Justin Charity, Ringer Staff Writer here. The boss battle that I think about the most probably many years after playing it is uh, when Cloud and company fight Rufus Shinra at the top of uh, the building in Final Fantasy 7, which is actually a pretty easy battle. Rufus has this shotgun and all of your characters have their standard weapons. But I remember at the time it was super impressive because of how the battle is shot. And sort of the pans that open and close the battle and the animation of how Rufus uses his shotgun. And like chiefly the fact that he ends the battle by escaping, by hopping on a helicopter. (laughs) And a lot of how that battle looks. You know, I remember as a kid, I think before I was a teen even, I just remember 
the cinematography of that battle looking like nothing I'd ever seen in a video game before. And it sort of tracks with a lot of how video games across all different genres became way more cinematic and movie-like with later console generations. And you kind of have subverted the typical kidnap the princess formula, which, you know, comes under fire nowadays, like with Super Mario Run, for instance, took a a lot of criticism for just being the same regressive formula where you are the guy and you kidnap the girl and she's helpless and she's the damsel in distress. And in this game, of course, you are the villain doing the kidnapping, but the princesses are kind of complicit. It's like almost a a (laughs) symbiotic relationship between the villain and the kidnappees and sometimes the kidnappees kind of become the kidnappers. So was that in your mind as, as you were laying this out? Yeah. So like, you know, in, in a lot of these other games, you only see the princess once at the beginning of the game and then you see her at the end. Uh, Nefarious kind of gave, kind of gave us a unique opportunity to make the princess essentially a co-star on the, you know, the player's adventure. And uh, we try to really have fun with that. You know, the um, the villain and the princess, they banter back and forth. I feel like we've been getting quite a good bit of praise for our, our writing on that. feel pretty proud of that. And I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but we really try to deconstruct the trope and present it like in every way possible. Right. I'm John Lovett, co-host of Pod Save America. I've given this a lot of thought, and I'm going to say the bosses of Shadow of the Colossus are my favorite boss fights now. That is a game literally made exclusively of boss fights, so you can call it a cop-out, but Trump is president, and you can say whatever the hell you want now. Shadow of the Colossus is a beautiful, haunting game with a control scheme that's absolutely bananas, and then all of a sudden it's intuitive and satisfying, and this simple, sad story unfolds through these incredible battles with these mammoth creatures. It's the best. Mechanically, what makes a great boss fight, and then how do you turn that around you know like a lot of a lot of the early boss fights i know from like nintendo days when we were kids it's just like basically just a ton of hit points obviously there's it's more nuanced now but so how do you how do you subvert that and how do you make that into how do you reverse that dynamic and make it playable well that was certainly a a challenge throughout the whole process you know one of the first boss fights we implemented was one of the first ones we were really excited because uh it's it's one of the few ones that you can look at and almost a lo- almost everyone immediately recognizes it from um, an old Sonic. I can't remember if, I actually can't remember if it was Sonic 1 or Sonic 2. It's one where uh, Dr. Robotnik has the pod and like little, um, mm-hmm. the ball and chain. I think that's one. From it. Yeah. 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 And uh, for that one, actually, when we were trying to figure out like, all right, how do we make this fun if you're the guy holding the ball and chain? And uh, we had an Xbox controller in our office. So we like, we picked that up by the wire. And we were like kind of swinging that back and forth. And we're like, all right, where, where's the game with this? And like pretending like there's like a little hero running around. And we that's what led us to that particular battle in which, um, you know, you have your little little Sonic parody character, uh, Dash the Bee, who um, he doesn't just run back and forth and try to jump up to the player, but he creates these little honeycomb towers uh, that he then tries to jump up onto, you know, to reach you. Because we found that swinging the ball around, it was really fun to just like knock things down. So we had to devise mechanics that supported that, you know, just to keep the whole experience fun. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is Chris Plant from TheVerge.com. My favorite boss fight is Gygus or Gigas from Earthbound or Mother 2 for hip leap gamers. If you haven't played Earthbound, this is a huge spoiler. It's the final boss of the game and you ultimately defeat it by praying nine times and different people from across the video game's world who you've uh, come to be friends with, they send their prayers back to you and ultimately the prayer of you, the player, is the final death blow to Gygus, Gigas. It's prayer, not violence, that wins the game. I don't think that's ever going to happen again in a video game, so I hope you enjoy it because uh, that's the last one. And have you kind of always empathized with the villain or I know that you've had this game in your mind for what a decade or or close to it in some form, but has this kind of been something that you always wanted to see more of when you're playing a game and you're playing the square jawed light side hero and it's, (laughs) you know, the villain is bad and not very complex. And did you always kind of want to find out more about the villain? Is that what led you to this? Oh, it's, I call it the Batman principle. You know, I, I've always thought Batman was like the least interesting character in Batman. It's it's all about the rogue gallery, right? Like everyone loves the villains. Right. 
And uh, that, that's kind of how it's been for me. You know, I love the villains in almost every um, major animated film or like major franchise. Like I like Bowser, uh, like Dr. Robotnik, Gandor. Those characters are always like the really interesting ones to me. Because I feel like as the main character, as like in most games where you're the hero, you're kind of stuck to this like kind of template almost. If the character has any personality at all, because a lot of times they just make them a blank slate so you can kind of project yourself onto them. Mm-hmm. And um, while there is a little bit of projection in Nefarious, we definitely wanted the, char- the main character to have a personality. Yeah. Hi, this is Blake Harris, the author of Console Wars. And even after all these years, one of my greatest achievements in life has to be, alliteration alert ahead, defeating Grumble Gromit in the Bubble Bobble boss battle. Phew, I said it correctly. Not only because of the odd visceral joy that came from popping those lightning bubbles and shocking that big ugly, but because like so many games back then, you know, during that pre-internet, pre-my parents allowing me to get Nintendo Power time period, I had no idea what to do going into the fight. So there was that whole interesting dynamic that came from trying to figure out the rules of combat. And then all that's compounded by the fact that it's just really, really fun to be a little bubble dragon. How big is your team? And is this the only thing you're working on? How'd you, and more broadly, how'd you get into game design? So the team size, it's primarily two people working on the title. Um, It is me doing all the art animation and it is Philip Spear who does all the programming. Uh, However, we do contract out a lot of work. Like uh, Matthew Toronto did a majority of our music and he was supported by David Levy and Double Clip to create our pretty cool soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) As far as how I got into game design, um, I went to school for 3D animation back in 07. Uh, I got my first job as a, um, a character artist in 2008, and I've essentially been freelancing ever since. My last two major projects where I was a contractor uh, were Tadpole Trouble, uh, which is currently available on Steam. Awesome little game. That's actually our composer, Matthew Toronto. That's his game. It's a game where you play as like a little... Um, tadpole and you swim through sheet music the other game uh quest of souls and necroball um they're kind of the same like franchise necroball is like kind of a um almost like a spin-off multiplayer title you're basically your two wizards playing a like a wizard sport where you're um you're trying to knock like a skull head into the opposing wizards like goal and there's like zombies spawning and they're um they're also walking towards your goal so you have to kind of like contend with them as well because if they walk into the opposing wizard's goal, they're worth one point. So it's um, it, it's pretty cool. This is Peter from the Netherlands, also known as How Big is the Map. We're talking about bosses and video games here. I hate bosses and video games. I don't fight them anymore since Half-Life 1. I remember fighting those machos in Quake 1, Quake 2, Turok 1, and a lot of other old games, and it sucked. They always had a weak spot, and I couldn't find it. And I didn't want to search for it, because that took too much time. The only reason I fought those show-offs was because I thought there would be new levels to play after that. But no, the game was finished. What a disappointment. So I don't like bosses, not at my work, and not at video games. Give me some weak creatures that I can kill fast, and let me just walk peacefully across my maps. Just in the last couple of years, I'd say last maybe three, four years, really feels like the indie game market has matured into something just so varied and interesting. And it's not something that was really available to a lot of people, you know, for most of, you know, the last 10, 12 years of gaming, especially on consoles, with the Steam marketplace really being so varied as it is. How have you seen the industry change with kind of the rise of indie games? Well, it's kind of like uh, what we touched on earlier. Uh, there's certainly been a um, a large saturation of indie games coming out. I think as the tools become easier, uh, we're going to you know just keep seeing just more and more games getting cranked out. I still think that uh, you know we'll still have like plenty of quality. I think it's a good thing though. I think it's a good thing that a lot of games are coming out because it gives us a better opportunity to see like great games. And how much of your 3D modeling experience is transferable to a game like Nefarious, which is a 2D side-scroller? Not a whole lot, honestly. Um, I have been, mostly my, I think because of the explosion of the iPhone, ever since that device came out, I've been getting so many contracts for 2D art that um, I haven't really needed to use my my 3D you know, expertise. <laughs> Coincidentally, though, we're kind of starting to see the opposite with the red, with the rise of the uh, of VR, you know, the Vive and the Oculus. You know, 3D work is becoming far more frequent in the you know independent game market, uh, which is also super cool. 
I'm Nels Anderson, and I'm a game designer who recently worked on Firewatch, and before that, I was lead designer on Mark of the Ninja. And my favorite boss is Ludwig the Accursed from Bloodborne, the Old Hunters. You know, while I think that the Orphan of Koss is probably the hardest boss in Bloodborne, and an encounter like Father Gascoigne or Vicar Amelia may be more memorable, uh, Ludwig is definitely my favorite. You know, it's this character you've heard all about through the course of Bloodborne, and when you finally encounter him in the old Hunter's expansion, he's this hideous, misshapen abomination, but he's also very tragic and kind of pitiable. You know, like all the best characters in Bloodborne, he's not what you expect. He tells of the fate that befalls that first Hunter and all the Hunters who have come after him. You know, mechanically, he's demanding and requires the player be very dynamic and adapt. His environment is, of course, horribly gruesome and laced with small but important details, and the music in the encounter is just fantastic. Ludwig basically represents everything I love about Hidetaka Miyazaki's games, and that's why he's probably my favorite boss. And you mentioned that this game kind of tackles a lot of tropes, and this is a game where, you know, the the minions will talk about not standing next to explosive <laughs> red barrels like minions do in every game, or you don't need keys to unlock the chests, you can just break them because you're a, a bad guy. Was there any game you look to kind of as a, a guide or a model for mocking gaming conventions? Because, you know, so many games take themselves very seriously and they don't really make fun of themselves. But Nefarious does to to good effect, I think. Uh, yeah, I'd say a lot of the um, I feel like of all the con- of all like the gaming like consoles and all that. I feel like Nintendo really plays with these tropes the most, which leads to a lot of our jokes. Like, what does Princess Peach do? You know, while she's at Bowser's uh, castle or whatever. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good. That's a good question. And I always like the idea that even though Crow is like this maniacal egomaniac, you know, that he actually like treats his captives well. You know, that there's like there's exercise rooms. Um, you know, when you first bring Princess <laughs> Mayapple to your ship, uh, your your major domo Becky. Um, is like preparing her usual, you know, spelt a la rosa, like just like really fancy sounding food, you know, like it's almost like a vacation for these princesses. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any um, particular favorite boss fights of your own that you use to um, inform the game? I don't know if it has much to do with how we ended up implementing a lot of boss fights. But when you asked me that, the boss fight that immediately jumped to my head was the one in Undertale because it just really jumped out at, out at me as like epic and awesome. <laughs> Um, as far as boss fights that we used for Nefarious, I would actually have to say Super Metroid. Oh, wow. Yeah, like uh, the the boss fight with Samus. It, I, first of all, I just thought it was a cool fight because I love uh, Mother Brain's design. Um, I love that the fight gets interrupted and there's like that, you know, spoiler, big emotional moment with the KV um, Metroid. <laughs> It's all right. It's it's like a twenty-two-year-old yeah. game. I think we're okay. What's the statute of limitation on on for twenty-year-old games? I don't know. And uh, for that fight, we looked at that idea like, okay, big giant thing that shoots lasers. Which, as we play tested and iterated on, that became our depth code, which is like our kind of near the middle midpoint of the game, the boss fight where you're like this giant robot and you're running through the city. Yep. And you're um you have to you uh, this this guy Mac is on the left and he's shooting these little energy bolts at you and then you have to actually catch them to stop them from hitting you but when you catch them you store them up in your you know your fist and then once you collect four of them you shoot like this laser back at them. Hi Ben, hi Jason, it's Chris Sullentrop. I'm the host of the podcast Shall We Play a Game, which I host with JJ Sutherland. I'm also a video game critic for places like the New York Times and Glixel and elsewhere. When it comes to boss fights, I'm a first day of school kind of guy. I like going to class, getting the syllabus, thinking about all the great fun I'm going to have, reading the books, uh, learning. And then, of course, when you get to that point in the semester or the video game, it's always a little disappointing. Bowser is indisputably the worst part of Super Mario Brothers, probably the greatest video game ever made. Bioshock, one of my favorite video games, ends with a hilariously bad boss fight that is, you know, out of keeping with the tone of the entire rest of the game. Growing up, I didn't even think of these things as boss 
fights is not terminology we used, but I remember the mothership from the Atari 2600 game Phoenix fighting Mike Tyson in Punch-Out. And I guess if I need a conventional boss choice, that would be it. But if you ask me what my favorite interactive video game ending is, I would say it's when John Marston in Red Dead Redemption confronts his foes who've arrived for a shootout and there's no way to win it and you die almost instantly. And of course, you don't restart and try to win again. The game doesn't end. I won't spoil that part. But to me, what's thrilling and amazing about that sequence, which I think is in one of the best video games ever made, is how it subverts your expectations of what a boss fight is, how challenging and difficult it will be, how it will bring together all of the skills that you've learned. And instead, what you do is you come back, retire with Bonnie to your life of uh, farming and solitude. And, and then, of course, you're brought back into it and die tragically and heroically. And maybe it's not a boss fight, but I think it is. It's a boss fight that you can't win. We talked about just the, the wave of Steam games, the wave of indie games, and so many of them are defined by sort of a 16-bit throwback retro look. 16-bit is part of your email address, so I assume <laughs> that that is an era that is near and dear to you. And so how do you go about sort of honoring the classics and trying to evoke that look, but also try to be distinctive while so many new games are trying to do essentially the same thing? How do you stand out visually? Uh, that led to one of our decisions to, because um, when we were originally thinking about art styles, uh, you know, we were thinking about doing pixel art just because I love, you know, drawing pixel art. But at the time, uh, there was just a lot of games coming out that were doing that. And so we're like, all right, let's, um, I guess let's try to modernize, like let's do like a modern 2D game which uh, we took more inspiration, you know, Rayman, um, the new Super Mario Brothers, Earthworm Jim HD, (laughs) Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And were those sort of gameplay touchstones too for you? Was there any specific platformer you were modeling it after? I would have to say Earthworm Jim. Yeah. When when I'm pitching the mechanics to someone and I want to explain it in its most like simplest terms, uh, I'll usually say like, you know, Mega Man meets Earthworm Jim. Because uh, like Earthworm Jim, we've got 360 aiming mechanics. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Mega Man, there's a lot of jumping and shooting. <laughs> For anybody out there who like loves games, would love to make games, but really doesn't know how to start in a career of making games, how would they do it? Well, uh, fortunately, there is a plethora of online resources available to someone who's interested in learning how to basically make games. I mean, you can go to any YouTube channel and just be like, uh, you know, how to make a platformer and you'll get tons of like little tutorials uh there's subreddits so you, that way you can network with other devs you know ask for help um i believe even the unity website has like a good you know library of tutorials and i mean unity's free you just need an internet connection and n- not even like a super powerful computer but you know just go and download it and you know start making games uh definitely pick a focus um well, if you want to do it professionally, I think it's always good to pick a focus. If you're making games for yourself, you're you have a lot a lot more freedom to kind of branch out and you know just kind of do what feels fun at the time. And I guess Kickstarter doesn't hurt either. That helps yeah. you too. <laughs> uh, yes, Kickstarter uh, is always great. Um, we uh, we're very fortunate in our Kickstarter campaign. We we hit our goal of fifty thousand in the last ten minutes of our campaign. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, like the morning of the last winner. day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we had we had to hit like forty thousand. I was like, oh, how am I going to raise ten thousand dollars in one day? Because I was like, there's no way I could cover the rest of that myself, you know. So it was it was a very stressful day. Do you find yourself like is that like the 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 promo part of the business? Does that get wearying sometimes? Because like you know, you're making a product, someone's going to buy it. It's not just like a labor of love. Yeah, I feel like a lot a lot of artists in particular are always that that I talk to anyway they're are kind of like that like they just they're really not into self promotion I wasn't super into it either I feel like I've gotten a lot better in it now that we're kind of since we obviously we launched a few days ago so I, I forced myself to like get out there and be like hey here's a key play my game review it please you know, yeah singing out the let's players and you know doing actually I love doing conventions I I, I really like watching people play the game because I love to see uh, nefarious in particular I try to create like a lot of little moments you know where we teach the player the mechanics without outright telling them and you know a bunch of little jokes I like seeing when jokes land or you know if, if a joke fails too many times and I'll you know rewrite it stuff like that 
All right. Well, Nefarious is out now. You can find it on the Steam store. You can read more about it at the website nefariousgame.com. And you can find Josh on Twitter at Josh Hano, H-A-N-O. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. I had a whole lot of fun. And before Jason and I wrap up by talking about a few of our favorite boss battles, we have one more former guest cameo from Charles Yu, Westworld writer and author of How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. My favorite boss battle was Mike Tyson, who was the boss of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out for the NES. I like, well, I didn't like it. I, I hated it. The first 11 guys are easy. They're idiots. You just figure out their trick and you can reliably beat them every time. But no matter how good you got at that game, Tyson was always just ridiculous. It was just his difficulty setting was too high. He touches you once and you fall down. So, you know, you get through the first 11 guys without losing and then it all comes down to this now. You're going into the final battle and your hands are sweaty and your mom's mad at you and like you have to go down to dinner in a minute. So like this is your last chance and the stakes are just too high for a little kid. And if you lose, you just wasted your afternoon. You know, and I usually lost and kind of ruined your day. But I remember the first time I did win, I walked around in a daze for a while. I just didn't know what to do with myself. I felt like I would never do anything that great again. And I didn't. Okay, so Jason, you and I have not discussed our favorite boss fights. No, so give me what makes a good boss fight. What are your favorite boss fights? What makes a good boss fight? I think a, the key to a great boss fight is fairness. Uh, mm. It can't feel like uh, bullshit. Yeah. I think that's the key. A lot mm-hmm. of boss fights can degenerate into this kind of hacking. You feel like you're hacking away at a tree with like a butter knife. Right. And it's just this massive thing that has 10 million hit points and you're just, you know, you you find the little movement pattern that you need to do and you just repeat that over and over. It's got to be yeah. some variation and you've got to feel like that you have a chance if you make a mistake. Um, I think yeah. it can't be overly punishing, but it's got to be challenging enough to where, you know, at the end of the thing, your your hands are cramped up and there's a sigh of relief and you feel like you really accomplished something. Yeah. And it's nice if you have to work for it a little bit, yeah. if it's not glowing weak points that are just exposed over and over and it's very obvious what right. you have to do. It's nice if you have to think a little bit. Obviously, every boss has a few different forms and the more varied they are, probably the better. But yeah. I am just a sucker for scale in just my huge, boss huge fights. animals. Yes. Beasts. Huge something. Like it doesn't <laughs> doesn't even necessarily have to be that hard or that clever. If it is great, that's a bonus. But I just want to be confronted with some monstrosity that just dwarfs my avatar and like takes up the whole screen and it seems totally improbable that I could ever fight this thing. And then you do. So a few that came to mind in that category, obviously God of War has a a bunch of bosses like that. So the Colossus of Rhodes in God of War 2. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Poseidon in God of War 3. God of War really knows how to how to do scale. Yeah, and Shadow of the Colossus, of yeah. course. I don't know what the best Colossus is. Like the first one is maybe just the most jarring. Like when you actually see a boss that big for the first time. I don't even know that I could pick a favorite. But if I'm just going with pure size, probably the the final Colossus is the largest. And then I was thinking Ugzan from Serious Sam, who is a Ooh. boss who just like takes up the entire screen, and it takes a few different levels to fight him. It's just a really drawn out battle and he's enormous and he towers over you. I love Sirius Sam. And in that vein, the mothership from Earth Defense Force 2017, Mm. which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary this year. It's just like a a giant Death Star looking thing, or it looks like the orb from Destiny. And you're just shooting at it with guns from the ground, which is completely ridiculous, but it works for that game. And then there are others like the Reaper in Mass Effect 2 and the Riftworm in Gears of War 2, which is just like a whole level where you go inside it and you kill it from the inside out. Those are all kind of in that genre of just bosses that are too big to fail and then you take them down. Nice. That's a good list. What do you got? You got any? Well, you know, I've played mostly shooters and multiplayer mm-hmm. shooters but i would say the big daddies from bioshock one yes oh yeah were kind of like a mini boss but those fights yeah. were just great because yeah. they were just so menacing and you'd fight them in these kind of like areas of the map where there's a lot of mobility you can kind of duck in and out of like a room into a bar into like some destroyed hotel yeah. and um 
you know, if you hit them with your with your firepower, the flames would still kind of lick off their their metal helmet as it comes at you. And it was just really, really great. I loved hitting them with the bees. Mm-hmm. That was some of my favorite ones. David versus Ellie in The Last of Us. Do you remember that mm. one? That's kind of yeah. like like a an uncommon boss fight in that it's a dude. Uh-huh. And there's some kind of like dissonance, logistical dissonance in that it's a dude who is really like super hard to kill. It's he's not a beast. He's not some giant creature. But I remember when the first when I very the very first time I played it and, you know, the the animation stopped and it and it came right into the fight. He just there's something about the way that scene is lit and the way he kind of like is is like marching around looking for Ellie and you're mm-hmm. creeping, you know, like behind tables and things like that. And it's just so menacing. That's like that's a great one. Yeah, it's hard to have a memorable boss in a first person shooter. It really is. I think yeah, yeah. it's just it's hard to get that variety because you're just shooting ultimately. That's kind of all you can do. I was also thinking of Ganon in Ocarina of Time. Yeah. Where you beat Ganondorf and you think it's over and then he yep. rises up. Those are the ones where if if they don't do it right, if they don't calibrate that right, it just feels like bullshit. Oh, it's like, uh-huh. oh God, he's back? I'm he's alive. <laughs> it's like Right. Yeah. But that one it's atmospheric and there's lightning and it's yeah. the end of a incredible game and it feels very satisfying. So those are the ones that come to my mind. But feel free to tweet at us, email us, however you Please. want to reach us. Share your favorite boss fight memories, and we will be back next Friday. Talk to you then. Bye.